All right, you can turn back to 1 Peter. We're continuing our study of 1 Peter this morning. While you're turning to 1 Peter, I'll share a little odd fact about myself. Um, I'm one of those rare people who actually really enjoys reading instruction manuals. Uh, when, I, when I get a new thing, like a new TV or phone or computer, I actually really look forward to reading the instructions. Whatever I've just bought, it actually it stays in the box until I've read the instructions. That's, that's just how I roll. I don't really know why that is. That's just what I, I love to read the instructions. Uh, I got a new phone this summer. I got an iPhone. And, and actually, before I'd even ordered the phone, I'd already gone online, downloaded the instructions, and read them because I was so looking forward to the instructions. Now, I know most of you think it's odd that I love reading instruction manuals, but let me be honest. I, I actually think it's odd that you don't. I think it's odd that you would not want to discover all the features about this new thing you just spent so much money on. I think it's odd that you wouldn't want to know how to get all that you can out of this new device. I, I sometimes I'll, I'll be at work and there's some other staff members who are going to remain nameless who have the same gadgets that I do and they will see me do something on my phone or my computer and they'll ask me, how did you just do that? I've been, I've been trying to figure out how to do that for weeks and I'll think to myself, why didn't you just read the instructions? There were like 10 pages, full color pictures. They told you how to do all of that. Why didn't you just read them? I, I love instruction manuals because they tell you how to do the things that you want to do. And, and that's one of the many reasons I actually really love studying the word of God. Because this is, whether you realize it or not, this is God's instruction manual to us. This is the instruction manual from the creator of life about how to live a good life. God didn't create us and then leave us on our own to try to figure out this thing called life. He didn't leave us in the dark. As a good creator, as a good God, he took dozens of men over thousands of years to write to us a detailed instruction manual on life. That's actually what 1 Peter is. It's an instruction manual about the good life, how to live the good life, the life that's full of joy and peace, that's full of significance and glory, the life that honors God. And in the next five Sundays, the next five passages that we will study, Peter is going to lay out for us detailed instructions about how to live the good life. That's where we're headed over the next five weeks. Peter is going to lay out for us six ingredients that make up the good life, six things that you have to have in your life if you want to experience the good life that God has designed for you. Let me give you kind of a, a heads up, a preview of where we're going over the next five Sundays. Peter's going to lay out for us, if you want to live the good life, here are the six things that you must pursue. You must pursue hope and holiness and love and worship and witness and submission. You can't live the good life if these things aren't part of your life. These are necessary ingredients for discovering the good life. Now, this list is not exhaustive. This is not all that scripture has to say about the good life. These are the six things that Peter's audience really needed to be reminded of. And there's six things that we really need to be reminded of. There's six things that are rare in our day that we need to pursue if we're going to live the good life. Now, Peter starts with the first two. Hope and holiness are his instructions for us this morning. The first two ingredients of the good life. And, and we'll start with the first one. Look with me starting in verse 13. Peter says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
The first command from Peter, the first ingredient of the good life is all about our mindset, what we think about. We need to fix our hope upon seeing Jesus, upon the grace we will receive when we see him. Now, a couple interesting things to note. In in the Greek text of 1 Peter, this, be holy, is actually the first command of the whole book. Don't know if you realize that. Verses 1 through 12, no commands. It's all what we call indicative tense verbs, simple declarations of truth. The book starts out with 12 verses where Peter just tells you truth about who God is and who you are. Before he ever gets to commanding you about what to do, he reminds you of who God is and who you are. That's a a good picture of the Christian life. First truth, then application. First indicative than imperatives. That's how it works in the Christian life. Second thing to notice, when Peter finally does get around to giving us commands, telling us what to do, where does he start? Not with our behavior, but with our thoughts. He starts in the mind. Before we get to holy behavior, it's fix your hope, it's attitude, it's, it's mindset. Peter's reminding us the secret to living a good life starts up here. You're not going to do what you need to do until you think the way you need to think. We start with getting the mind in the right place. If our thoughts are right, then right behavior will follow. So Peter starts with hope. We should have a mindset of hope fixed upon the grace we'll receive when Christ returns. Now let's review this key word for a moment. We looked at it a couple weeks ago. What does hope mean? In English, how we use it in English vernacular, it means a wish or a desire that may or may not come true. Like, I hope I win the lottery. The chances of me winning the lottery, that's based on probability. That's what we mean in English by hope. It's not what the Bible means by hope. When you see the word hope in the Bible, it means a confident expectation that God will fulfill his promises. Biblical hope is not based on chance. It's not based on probability. It is based on the secure, sure promises of God. That's a biblical hope. That God will do what he said he will do. It's, it's hope that's based on confidence, not chance. Now, what has God promised in this passage? Well, specifically, Peter says that you will receive grace at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That when you see Jesus face to face, he will give you grace. He is bringing grace for you. And, and Peter described that grace quite exhaustively in the first 12 verses. We looked at that over the last few weeks. That future grace includes our inheritance. Jesus is bringing an inheritance from God for every one of us. An inheritance that includes glory and honor and opportunity to rule with Jesus Christ. And and that grace also includes the, the completion of our salvation. God is bringing for us at the return of Jesus Christ resurrected bodies and and honor and an opportunity to live with God forever in heaven and eternal life. All of the things that we look forward to, that's the grace that will be ours when we see Jesus Christ. And Peter challenges us to fix our hope on that future grace, to fix our our expectation, our anticipation, to, to be excited about what we will receive from Jesus when we see him face to face. That's Peter's point. He wants us to anticipate, to long for, to be excited about the grace we'll receive when we see Jesus. And notice, very significant wording here, Peter challenges us, fix your hope completely on that future grace. God doesn't want us to live with divided hope. Some of our hope is fixed upon the return of Jesus. Some of our hope is fixed upon the things of this world. God God doesn't want us to fix any of our hope on the things of this world. 
on the things that this world teaches us to hope in. Things like education, money, promotions, uh, getting a date on Friday night, moving to a better house, all the things that this world teaches us to fix our hope upon. God says, leave no hope for those things. Don't fix any of your hope in the things of this world. Why? Because God hasn't promised us the things of this world. God in his grace, he may give you some of those things. He, he may bring your way a promotion. He may bring your way financial security. He may give you a date on Friday night, but he hasn't promised to do that. So don't fix your hope in things you can't count upon. Fix your hope only in what you can count on, and that's that Jesus is bringing you grace. That when you finally see him face to face, he will give to you salvation and inheritance and eternal life and everything you've hoped for. That's where we're to fix our hope completely. Now, how do we actually do that? That's kind of an esoteric thing. How do you actually, practically speaking, fix your hope upon the grace you'll receive from Jesus. Well, that's the rest of verse 13. There's actually two modifying phrases in this verse that tell us how to do this thing. The first phrase is by preparing your mind for action. And literally in Greek, it reads, fix your hope by girding the loins of your minds. That's kind of a a weird metaphor. What's going on there? That, That metaphor looks at men's fashion in the ancient world. Men wore long robes. They went all the way to the ground. And, and they were fine if you were just relaxing or just casually walking. But if you really needed to move in a hurry, those robes would trip you up. So what you would do is you would, you would gather up your robe and you would tuck it in your belt. And then you were free to move or to fight or to work. And, and that's what Peter's looking at here. A modern day equivalent would be roll up your sleeves. It's time to get to work, so roll up your sleeves. What Peter's telling us is, if you want to fix your hope on Jesus Christ, it takes mental effort. It takes hard work to fix your hope on the grace you'll have when you see Jesus Christ. That's because seeing Jesus, for most of us, that feels a long ways off. Unless Jesus returns sooner, seeing Jesus is probably going to be 20, 40, 60, 80 years for some of us. It seems like an incredibly distant thing. It's much easier to fix our hope on things that are immediate. To fix our hope on on where we're going to lunch this afternoon or on what we're going to do this week or on the next thing we're going to buy or the next thing we're going to get. It's easy to fix your hope on immediate things. It's hard to fix your hope on something that seems so distant, that seems decades away. Peter's saying, yeah, it is. It's hard to fix your hope on something that seems so far in the future. It takes work. It takes mental effort. You need to roll up the sleeves of your mind. You need to discipline yourself so that your eyes can see what's coming in the distant future. What that means is that you need to spend time reviewing the promises of God. You need to keep the promises of God front and center in your mind. That means spending time in God's word. It means spending time in prayer. Spending time memorizing scripture. Memorizing the promises that God has made for you. It means spending time in worship, whether individually or as a community. It means spending time in creation, seeing what a good and beautiful and creative God we have. It means spending time reading good books like missionary biographies. That's one of the most helpful things I've ever found to to refresh my hope, to remind me of what's coming to me in the future. Uh, What God is challenging us here is that if we're going to fix our hope completely on seeing Jesus Christ, we have to put in the work. We have to discipline our minds. This doesn't come easy. If you just let your mind think about what comes easily, you'll think about what's immediate. 
What's going on this afternoon? What's going on this week? God's challenging us. Do the work. Put in the mental effort in the word and prayer and worship so that you can reflect upon the promises of God, so that you can see what's coming years from now when you finally see Jesus face to face. That's the first way you fix your hope on this distant thing is that you continually, you do the mental effort in the word of God, in scripture, in prayer, in worship. Second thing that Peter tells us, the way that we fix our hope on seeing Jesus is by keeping spiritually alert, literally by keeping sober. Now, when we think of sobriety, what do we think of? Well, you you think of alcohol. If you drink too much alcohol, you become inebriated, intoxicated. Uh, But Peter has something bigger in mind here than just drinking too much alcohol. Uh, He's talking about avoiding an excess of anything that would dull our senses, that would cloud our reasoning. As I reflected on verse 13 this week and looked at my own life, I, I, I came kind of to a realization for me and probably for many of you, Alcohol is really not our intoxicant of choice. Our intoxicant of choice is media. So I, I said I got a new phone this summer. It's, it's an iPhone. It's, it's got all these fun apps on it. And one of the first things I loaded on my phone were all these news apps. I love reading the news. I'm kind of a news junkie. And so I, I think last count, I've got like seven different news outlets on my phone. And, and that includes world news and national news and local news and, and weather and sports and technology news. And, and I love reading it. I, I love reading news on my phone. But um, reading news on your phone or, or online news, it's a little different than it used to be when I used to read the paper. Think back like decades ago when you actually read a paper. Okay, it came to your door in the morning and you sat down, you poured a bowl of cereal and you opened up the paper and you read it and then you finished. And you closed it, you folded it up, you set it aside. No more news till tomorrow. You're done with the news. But, but that's not how online news works. Um, I'm constantly getting updates on my phone every day, all during the day of new news articles. It's constantly updated. It's constantly added to. I could literally read the news 24 hours a day and not exhaust the day's news. Okay, well, there's nothing wrong with reading the news. It's actually probably a good thing to be aware of what's going on in the world. But it is a bad thing when I spend more time reading the news than I do reading God's word. There have been days since I got my phone when I spent more time reading the news than I did in scripture reading, prayer, and worship together. God really convicted me about that. that. That's not good. News is good, but when I let it become an excess in my life, then I become dull in my senses. How can I keep my mind fixed upon the promises of God? How can I keep my mind fixed upon seeing Jesus face to face if all of the spare spaces in my mind are filled with news, are filled with the things of this world? Now, for you, maybe it's not news. Maybe it's TV. You come home after a long day of work, you flip on the TV, there's Sports Center. That's what fills the recesses of your mind. Or maybe for you, it's a video game. There's a game you love playing. You love it so much that even when you're not playing, you're thinking about playing that video game. Or maybe for you, it's it's Facebook or Twitter. You're constantly checking people's updates, their status. That's what you do all day, every moment of the day. Or maybe for you, it's it's a good book. You've got your head buried in a book or a magazine every spare moment that you have. Now, again, let me be clear. None of those things are bad in moderation. But in excess, just like alcohol, they become an intoxicant. They, they dull our mental senses. They fill all the space of our mind and cloud our thinking so that we cannot fix our hope on this event decades in the future for most of us. When we see Jesus face to face, we can't think about that because we're so busy thinking about the things of today, the things of this world, the things that are immediate and around us. 
So let me challenge you this week to ask yourself a question. Actually, you can do it right now. Ask yourself this question. What is the state of your mind? Is your mind swimming in the truths of God or is your mind swimming in the distractions of this world? What fills the spaces of your mind? As, as you think about this question, as you f- reflect on it, uh, I, for many of you it's going to be convicting like it was for me. Uh, we may need to each cut back on some of the media we consume during the week. We may need to dial it back a bit. Dial a bit back a bit how much TV we watch, how many video games we play, how much news we consume, how many times we go to Facebook, how many books we read. Whatever. We may need to dial that back a little bit so that we can free up more time for our minds to be fixed upon the promises of God for our minds to spend time thinking and meditating upon Scripture, on who God is, on who we are, on what we will see that day that we meet Jesus face to face. I would challenge you this week, I'm guessing that this is probably going to be an application for every one of us. What is that area of media, of entertainment, of communication that you need to dial back a bit so that you can free up time for your mind to fix your hope completely on the grace you'll receive when you see Jesus face to face? That's where Peter starts for us. You can't live the good life if your hope is not completely fixed upon seeing Jesus Christ. If you don't have your mind fixed on that day, on that event when you see him face to face, then the good life is impossible for you. That's where it begins is with the mind, not with our behavior, but with our thinking. Now, once we have our thinking in line, once we have our hope fixed upon seeing Jesus face to face, then it's time to move to behavior. That's where Peter goes with the second command. If you want to live the good life, here's the second thing you need. Look with me, starting in verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Second ingredient of the good life, the second thing that we have to pursue is holiness. If you want to live the good life, you have to be holy like your heavenly Father is holy. That's a, that's a really significant word, holy. You see it actually a lot in Scripture, both in Old Testament and New Testament. Incredibly significant word. You, you really can't overstate the importance of this word. Uh, you see it a lot more than you realize. It's translated a number of different ways. It's hagios in Greek. It's translated holy, sanctified, set apart, saint. Anytime you see any of those words, same word, it's holy. Okay, now, what does that word mean? We see it all the time. It's it's kind of one of those Christian-y words. We talk about holiness all the time. We, we, we see it all the time. But do we really know what it means? I want to take a, a little bit of time to walk you through this idea of holiness. Really significant in Scripture. Really significant in the book of 1 Peter. So this will help you understand where Peter's going in this book. What does it mean to be holy? Well, the basic idea of that word is to be set apart. To be distinct. Uh, The opposite is to be ordinary or common. That's what the basic word means. You're set apart from the ordinary. You are uncommon. You are distinct. Now, you notice from the verses we read, our holiness is based upon God's holiness. That's where holiness starts is with God. He is holy, therefore we should be holy. So you need to start with the holiness of God. He's the model of holiness. He's the exemplar of holiness. So uh, what does it mean that God is holy? I want to take you to a few passages of scripture. It's a big subject. We're just going to look at a couple things. Uh, first passage to look at, Exodus fifteen eleven. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? 
Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? Number of things to notice there. God's holiness is connected to his uniqueness. He is unlike anything else. There is nothing that is like God. That's the first part of what it means that he is holy. His holiness is connected to his majesty, to how awesome he is, to his glory. It sets him apart as amazing. Second passage I want us to look at together is Isaiah. If you'll turn to Isaiah chapter 6, it's just to the right of the middle of your Bible, one of the longer prophets of the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 6, a passage that many of you have seen before. I want to look at it in some detail. It's kind of the most significant classic passage on God's holiness in Scripture. So Isaiah chapter 6, starting in verse 1. These are the words of Isaiah. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined." Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. A few things to notice here. First of all, the repetition. In Hebrew, how you emphasize something is by repeating it. You don't say very, very holy. You say holy, holy, holy. That's, that's how you emphasize something. Now, throughout your Old Testament, you're going to see lots of places where a word is repeated once. It's emphasized by one repetition. So it appears twice. Uh, Very, very few times you'll see the author really emphasize something by repeating it again. So you see it three times. And actually, this is the only place in the Old Testament where an attribute of God is repeated three times. It's a lot of attributes of God. Mercy, justice, righteousness, love, grace, omnipotence. None of those are ever repeated three times. Only holiness. What God is telling us is at the core of who he is, is holiness. Now, you don't have to pick one attribute of God above the others. God is all of them. But if someone forced you to pick one attribute of God, you would pick holiness. That's the one that God said. Holy, holy, holy. Repeats it twice. It appears three times because God is saying, this is at the core of who I am, is my holiness. Notice other things about holiness here. It's again, it's linked to God's glory. Because he is holy, therefore he is glorious. Glorious above all the earth. It's linked to his power. The the temple is shaking. It is filling with smoke because of his incredible, immense holiness. Notice also how holiness relates to sin. When holiness is around, sin trembles before it. What does Isaiah say? Woe is me. I am ruined. And think about who Isaiah is. Uh, He's no slouch. He's he's a prophet. He's like one of the most significant prophets in all of scripture. He's a stud in the annals of, of, of the Bible. And yet he stands before God and all of God's holiness. And he says, woe is me. I am done. I am finished because I, a sinner, stand in the holiness of God. Holiness and sin are are incompatible with one another. They're polar opposites of one another. It's like light and darkness. Light and darkness, by definition, cannot coexist. And, And whenever you get the two of them together, light always wins. Light always dispels darkness. So it is with holiness. Put holiness and sin in the same room. Holiness wins. Sin is destroyed. And so Isaiah says, I'm done. I'm finished because I'm in the holiness of God and yet a sinner. Third passage I want us to look at is from the book of Revelation, towards the very end of the Bible. 
Revelation 15. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. You alone are holy. No one is holy like God is holy. It's linked to to the worship of God. Our right response to God's holiness is to bow the knees and worship before him, to be in awe of his glory and splendor. You know, that's just three passages. There's a lot more that we could study, but those are kind of the big three that I wanted to spend a few minutes on. Uh, Having looked at those passages, I think we we can try to put together a definition of God's holiness. That God is holy means that he is absolutely separate, unique, and distinct from all of creation. God's holiness means he is completely distinct from everything that's created. That's, that's the material world, that's human beings, that's angels. Everything else is different from God. He is absolutely distinct. And that refers both to his separation from sin and evil. Sin and evil do not in any way taint God. He has no sin or evil in anything he says, does, or thinks. But it goes beyond that. His holiness is also his complete otherness. He is absolute other from everything else. I like how how John Piper put this. He is utterly set apart in a class by himself, unequaled, unrivaled, totally underived, absolute in his being in perfection without beginning or ending or improvement. That's the holiness of God. He's in a class by himself. He's utterly unlike us. Now, in that absolute sense of holiness, we, we can't become holy like God is holy. Not in an absolute sense, because we're part of creation. We're here, we're created beings. We will never be distinct from creation because we're part of creation. And yet the basic idea of God's holiness can still apply to us, set apart. We can be set apart from the world like he is set apart from the world. And Peter has a couple different senses of that in mind. There's a couple ways in which we become holy. First of all, there's our positional holiness. At the moment that you accept the gospel, The moment that you believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead, you become positionally holy. God reaches down and grabs you out of the mass of humanity running away from him. He takes you out of humanity and sets you apart as part of his family. We talked about that the first week in 1 Peter. That's God's positional holiness that he puts upon us. Now, that's that's not actually the type of holiness Peter has in mind in our passage. In our passage, he's looking at our experiential holiness, that we become more and more holy as we become less and less like the world and more and more like God. That's what Peter means here. When he commands us to be holy, he's talking about our experience of holiness, our growth in holiness, becoming less and less like the world and more and more like God. And Peter tells us how that happens. How do you become experientially holy? Well, first of all, you avoid something. That's where Peter started. You avoid the former lusts. You avoid being conformed to the lusts or the sinful desires of this world. That, that word conformed that Peter uses, it means to be fit into a mold. It's like, it's like when you were a kid and, and you had those plastic molds and, and you pressed Play-Doh into them and then you popped it out and the Play-Doh took the shape of the mold. That's what this world is trying to do to you. This world is trying to conform you to its image. It's trying to press you into its mold. Its image is characterized by 
lusts, Peter says. Lusts, that's, that's these strong desires of the sinful flesh. That includes immorality, that includes lust for power, that includes lust for indecent pleasures. All the different things that characterize the sins of the flesh. The world is constantly trying to pull you towards those lusts, to form you into its image. Peter's saying holiness begins by avoiding the conforming influence of the world. Avoiding the sins of the flesh. That's where holiness begins, but that alone is not enough. Holiness is not defined as the absence of sin. It goes beyond that. Holiness also includes obedience, notice what Peter says, in all your behavior. To be holy doesn't just mean that you avoid sin. It means that you become obedient to God the Father in every area of life, in all of your behavior. Holiness extends not just to your actions, but to your speech and to your thoughts, to your motives, to your attitudes. All of that is included in holiness. And notice holiness isn't just like a Sunday morning thing. Holiness is 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Holiness is comprehensive. It includes everything we do. So I think we're ready to to venture a definition of what it means for us to be holy. When Peter says be holy, he's telling us avoid all sin and fully obey God in every area of life all the time. That's holiness. It's absolutely comprehensive. Avoid all sin in your life and fully obey God in absolutely everything that you say, do, or think all of the time. Now, if we're honest with one another, when you define holiness like that, you realize it's really hard. That kind of holiness it's really hard. It's, it's hard enough to be holy in my actions. It's hard enough to be holy in my speech, but in my mind? Not, not just in my thoughts, but in my attitudes, in my motives? All of them have to be perfect for me to be holy. That's incredibly hard. And every time I try to do this holy thing, I feel this resistance well up within me. It's my flesh. It's the sin within me. It doesn't like holiness. It pushes back. It resists. Holiness is incredibly hard. It is much easier to give in to sin than to be holy. So why should we do it? Why should we put forth the incredible effort that holiness takes? Well, Peter spends the rest of the passage telling us why. He knows holiness is hard. It's incredibly hard, incredibly difficult. So he gives us three reasons to pursue holiness in the rest of the passage. Three reasons why the effort to be holy is worth it. And we'll start first one, verse 17. Look with me there. Peter says, if you address as father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. First reason we should pursue holiness is because God will judge us. That's verse 17. God will judge us. I want you to notice the context of this judgment in verse 17. This is not judge to criminal This is father to child. That's very significant that the context of this judgment is father to child. Uh, We are children of God. You become a child of God the moment that you believe the gospel. The moment that you choose to believe that, that you're a sinner, but that Jesus died to pay for all of your sins, rose from the dead, and offers you eternal life as a free gift. The moment that you believe that. Jesus died for your sins, rose from the dead, and gives you eternal life as a free gift. You become forever a child of God. And that's very significant. That's a source of great security in our lives. Think about human father-child relationships. There's nothing that Luke and Gracie could ever do that would cause them to no longer be 
my children. Think about that. Now, uh, I pray that they don't, but they could do some really bad stuff in the course of their lives. And, and that bad stuff might bring pain into our relationship. It might bring estrangement into our relationship, but they will always be my children. Even if they come up to me one day and say, dad, I don't want to be your child anymore. Doesn't matter. You're my kid. <laughs> you came from me. Therefore, you are my child. You will always be. That's how it works with God too. There is nothing that we could ever do to lose our child status. Once a child of God, always a child of God. Now, again, your sin, you might bring estrangement, you might bring pain into the relationship, but you can't lose being a child of God. You can't give that back. Once a child of God, always a child of God. That, that tells us that verse 17, the judgment here, it's not about heaven or hell. If you're a child of God, heaven is already settled for you. You will spend eternity with your father. That's guaranteed. You will spend eternity with him because you're his child and you can't give that back. So this isn't judgment of heaven or hell. We will spend eternity with God for certain because we are his children. That's the good news of verse 17. Now the bad news. This one who is our father, he is also the impartial judge of all human beings. And that includes us. We will be judged. And notice the nature of our judgment. It's not judgment of faith. It's judgment of what? Of works, of conduct, of our, of our actions, of our speech, of our thoughts, attitudes, and motives. All of that will be laid bare before God and he will judge it impartially. He will not show us favoritism. He will judge all that we have done. And, and notice the consequence of that, of that judgment, fear. We, we should be in fear of that day when we will stand before God for judgment. That's not just something that Peter tells us, it's something that Paul talks about. Often, one passage in particular, 2 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11, Paul says, therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad, therefore knowing the fear of the Lord. Paul here is talking about a judgment of believers. Unbelievers aren't included in the judgment seat of Christ. This is just for believers. And it's not, again, a judgment of our faith. It's a judgment of our works. What have we done as, as believers for God in this life? He judges our actions, our speech, and our thoughts. He lays it all to bear. And the consequence of this judgment is recompense. We receive what is just. We receive what we deserve. We talked a little bit about that last week. The believer who is faithful in this life, when he stands before God, he receives from God glory, honor, and reward. He receives from Jesus Christ what are perhaps the greatest words ever uttered in the, in the English language at least, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what you receive from God when you stand for judgment, if you have pursued holiness, if you have been faithful. On the flip side, if you've lived an unfaithful life, if you haven't pursued holiness, then scripture tells us when we stand before God, we will receive dishonor. We will receive shame. We will receive regret. We will receive loss. We will not inherit, we will not share in the inheritance of Jesus Christ if we've been unfaithful in this life. Now again, we're still in heaven, that's not at stake, but rather than glory and joy and honor and reward from God, we're ashamed of ourselves. We regret the lives that we've lived. Now that thought terrified both Peter and Paul. 
Both of them say, when I think about that day, when I stand before God, his judgment of me will be terrifying. I am afraid of standing before him, having lived an unpleasing life. It's, it's right to feel fear of God. I don't know if you realize that's a biblical concept. It's right to be afraid of God. Yes, he's our father, but remember who he is. Holy, 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 impartial judge, creator, all-powerful, almighty. You'll stand before him one day and you'll give an account of your life. And that is a cause for fear. Not, not a paralyzing fear, but a reverent fear. A fear that says, I, I wanna be ready when I stand before him. I want to offer him a pleasing life. Why should I not give in to this sinful thought or this sinful action? No other human being may know this sin that I'm about to commit, but God does. And one day I will stand before him in all of his glory, nothing between the two of us, and I will have to answer for what I'm about to do. That is powerful motivation for holiness. When you think about the fear you will experience standing before the holy, holy, holy God of heaven and earth, and giving an account of your life. That is an incredible motivation for holiness. I want that day to go well for me, so I'm going to pursue holiness. Second motivation that Peter gives us is found in the next verse, verse 18. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your fathers. It's right there at the end of verse 18. Peter's telling us the alternative to holiness is really not that great. The alternative to holiness, sin, it is futile. That word means it's, it's useless, it's fruitless, it's disappointing. Peter's reminding them, okay, th- these are Gentiles that he's writing to. He's reminding them, what kind of life did you come from? You, you didn't come from Christian homes or even Jewish homes. You, you came from homes where sin was accepted. What was your experience of life when that's what you practiced? Was it very rewarding? Did you have a lot of joy? Did you have a lot of peace? No, you didn't. That's why the gospel was so appealing to you. That sinful way of life, it left you unsatisfied. Sin always brings futility. It always leads to shame and pain and regret. Both to believers and unbelievers, whether unbelievers will admit it or not, sin always leads to futility, to pain, shame, and regret. That's always what you get for sin. So Peter's reminding us, why pursue holiness? Because the only other option isn't that great. Sin may be easier, but it's far more painful in the long run. It will not get you what you want. It will only bring you futility, shame, pain, and regret. Third and final motivation Peter gives us is found in the next, actually starts in verse 18. We'll go back there. Knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, As of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, for he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. What Peter's telling us, a third and final reason to pursue holiness, is because your freedom from sin costs God so much. Redemption is the word that Peter uses here. Redemption, it means to be freed from slavery by the payment of a ransom. What was the price of your freedom? It was not gold or silver or all the wealth of this world. It was the most precious thing that the father ever possessed, the life of his son. That's the most valuable thing God the Father has in all the universe is Jesus Christ, his son. And God the Father willingly gave his son for us. 
He gave the life of Jesus as a payment for our redemption so that we could be freed from slavery to sin. We were born slaves of sin. We couldn't help but sin. But God released us from sin's ownership, from that slavery, and set us free through the death of his son. For us, that's what God the Father and God the Son always planned for you. Before they created the world, God the Father and God the Son planned for you that Jesus would die. He would die for you in your place so that, verse 21, you could put your faith and hope in God. You could be saved because Jesus died for you. Peter's point in this passage is to say, why should you pursue holiness? Why should you obey God? How can you not obey God who gave up so much for you? He gave up what was most precious in all the universe. He gave up the life of his own son for us. How can we not give him back obedience? Our obedience is nothing compared to what he gave up for us. It's a small price to pay. How can we not obey one who gave up so much for us? So let's just look back at this for a moment. Holiness is hard. Holiness is difficult. The call of holiness is comprehensive. All of your actions, all of your speech, all of your thoughts must be perfectly righteous all the time in every area of life. That's incredibly difficult. So Peter provides lots of motivation for us. Why pursue this difficult path of holiness? Because you will stand before God for judgment one day. And it will be fearful if you've not pursued holiness. And two, because the other option, sin, is futile. You know that. You've experienced the consequences of sin. It always leads to shame and regret. So don't go there. And third, pursue holiness because it's the, it's the least we can do to one who gave up so much for us, so much to set us free. And so let me just draw this together with a final application for you guys. God is challenging us to become holy. You cannot experience the good life that God has planned for you apart from holiness. Holiness is essential to the good life. So uh, what I want to challenge us to do, and I include myself in this, I want to challenge us uh, over the course of today before this gets too far away from us. I want you to ask yourself some questions. Just privately, I want you to ask yourself and be honest with yourself, where in your life are you falling short of the call of holiness? Is there some realm of actions or speech or thoughts or motives where you are not being holy? Is there some area of your life where you've actually surrendered to sin? You've, you've fought against some temptation for so long, you've just gotten tired of it, and you've surrendered that area of your life. Maybe it's a realm of your thoughts or of your speech. You've just surrendered that area to sin. I want to challenge you to go before the Lord with whatever that sin is and turn it over to him. Specifically, I want to challenge you this week as you think about these questions, as as God points out to you uh, uh, areas of sin in your life, I want to challenge you to go before God in confession, to admit to him, God, that this area of my life, this is wrong. There, There is no excuse for any sin in my life. Sin is not manageable. It's not okay for me to have any sin in any area of my life. God, I turn this over to you. I confess this is wrong. This thought, this way of thinking, these actions, this speech, the way I talk, this is wrong. Confess it to the Lord. Then dedicate yourself to God. God, I dedicate myself to holiness in this area of my life. God, do whatever it takes to grow me. God, I dedicate myself to the power of your spirit to have victory in this area of my life. I know you can give me victory. No sin is too strong for you. God, root out this sin in my life. Do whatever it takes to purify me in holiness. And finally, pursue accountability. Go ask another believer, will you hold me accountable? Will you ask me how I'm doing in this area of my life? We should be confessing our sins to one another. 
We should be admitting our shortcomings so that we can support one another and help one another to grow in holiness. And, and finally, I want to talk to those of you who, who you look at your life and, and you find some sin in your life that goes really deep. Some area of sin where the roots go really deep, maybe an addictive sin. Maybe, maybe a sin that's been there for a long time that, that you've been trying to battle back against. You've been trying to hold it back, but it just keeps growing. It's incredibly deep. I want to challenge you. Uh, you may need some more help. You, you may need somebody to come alongside you and support you and help you to root up that really deep sin. Uh, a couple things to, to point out to you. We do have a Celebrate Recovery program here at the church. It actually meets here at the Southwood campus on Tuesday evenings. It's for those who are struggling with addictive sins, sin that just you can't seem to pull it up. No matter what you do, it just keeps growing. If you struggle with addictive sin in any form, I want to challenge you to become part of a Celebrate Recovery. It's very private, very confidential, but I really think it's, it's one of the best ways God has given us to grow in victory over really deep, really addictive sins. You can find out all the information online or you can call the church office if you want more information. Uh, also, if you feel like you just need to talk to somebody, know that, that uh, we who are on staff here and, and the leaders of the church, the elders, the deacons, we're safe people to talk to. We would love to sit down with you and talk about this, this sin in your life and help you to, to put some steps in place to pull that root of sin up, to bring holiness into that dark place in your life. If, if you find yourself down in a pit of sin, unable to pull yourself up, come talk to us. Don't leave that sin there. You cannot experience the good life as long as that sin is in root in your life. So come, talk to us. Let us help you to bring holiness into that area of your life. And now I want us to, to go before the Lord and pray for his help because we can't do either of these things, fixing our hope upon Jesus or walking in holiness without his help. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your son has made hope and holiness possible. Lord, if he would not have died for us, hope and holiness would be impossible. We could not live with hope. We could not live with holiness. Thank you so much that his death made these things possible in our lives. Father, we pray that as we get into these commands in the book of First Peter, that we would have soft hearts, that you would, you would convict us for each and every one of us in this room. I'm, I'm confident that these, these two commands touch us in some way. They convict us in some way. Please make us sensitive to the convicting ministry of your Holy Spirit, Lord. I pray that you would show us where we fall short, that you would challenge us, Lord, that you would help us to confess that sin to you, that you would help us to rededicate ourselves to you and to seek accountability and to walk with you faithfully. Lord, help us to grow in hope and in holiness. We pray all this in the name of your perfect son. Amen. All right, God bless you guys. See you next week.